Berean Bible Fellowship. Thank you for being out. It was a happy day and it still is, isn't it? To be here this morning and to know that your sins are forgiven. Praise the Lord that the Bible promises that we can have assurance, that we can know that we're born again and we can know that we have eternal life. You had a little while to find 2 Kings, all right? So are you still there? Can you get back to it without it taking too long or it being too difficult for you? 2 Kings chapter 21. And I would like to reread one verse from that chapter. And then we will add to that two additional verses from a chapter a couple later than where this is. Note verse 16 once again in chapter 21, 2 Kings 21. Note again verse number 16. Now Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, beside his sin, which he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Let's uh, just turn over now to chapter 24, as we pick up some tail-end comments to this, and look at verse 3, then look at verse 4, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the message for today. Um, 2 Kings 24, then verse 3 and 4, Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did and also for the innocent blood that he shed for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day you've given to us and rejoice again in the beauty of it, the sunshine that cheers our spirits and uh, Father, I pray that we would have open hearts now, um, not only cheerful spirits but uh, enthusiasm about uh, meeting together, looking for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives to receive the encouragement, the instruction, the admonition, whatever it is that we need today and to help us to be better Christians and to meet needs that are perhaps even unspoken in our own hearts and lives. I pray you'll just guide and direct now, uh, draw everyone closer to you. May no one go away today without a sense of your presence here and your ministry in, in each life. And we'll thank you for all that you do now. We remember especially if we should have anybody here not knowing Jesus as personal Savior or uncertain of that fact, may that person be drawn to you and will give you thanks and give you the honor and glory for everything you accomplish in our service today. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. For many years now, it has been my practice each year in January when we come to that Sunday, which is often known today as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, to bring a message on what we have come to recognize today in America is legalized abortion. If you're not familiar with Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, it's generally the Sunday chosen in January, so we're a little late, but if you remember January 20th, which was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday this year, we had a snow cancellation that day. And so I want to circle back around and, and do this because I think uh, there are some other factors that make it important for us to have this reminder. But Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is that Sunday in January that is closest in connection with the anniversary, if we can call it that, of the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision in 1973, January 22nd to be exact. The Sunday closest to it, which is the opportunity for us to remember the sanctity of human life and the teaching of the Bible as it pertains to this particular subject. I do wish to say at the beginning that you have to understand something that's a great burden. Every time you preach on this, it used to be years and years ago you preached on this and it wasn't like it is today. Enough years have passed, 46 to be exact. Enough years have passed now that of course with the fact that the church has reached out and won people to Christ and with the fact that there are occasions when sometimes even Christian folk can go astray 
and make bad choices that we have to be aware of the fact that there is always that possibility that someone in the audience has been affected by this sin. And I reach out to anybody like that today and assure you that I approach this subject on the one hand with gentleness, understanding that this is a sensitive subject if that's the case, while on the other hand it requires a measure of forcefulness because of what God really has to say about it in making the application to our nation, which is really what I'm after today. So please understand that at the very outset. Just how serious is this in America today? Well, it's estimated that some 60 million children have been, have been aborted in the 46 years since abortion has been legal in the United States of America. To put that in some perspective for you, 60 million, how many is that? Well, if we use the figure of 325 million people as the uh, population of the United States, you're looking at 18% of the current population. Can you wrap your mind around that? Can you wrap your mind around taking 18% of the people who live in our country today, lining them up and gassing them or shooting them or annihilating them in some way? That's just how serious this has gotten to be. It used to be when I was a boy, and I hope it still is really, when this subject is taught in the classroom history that we were horrified with what Hitler did to the Jews in World War II. How many Jews is the round figure, generally speaking, is given six million Jews that were exterminated by the Nazis in World War II. That's absolutely horrifying, but we're talking about ten times that many innocent lives that have been lost to the crime and the atrocity of abortion. There are some factors that I think make it important for us to be tenderized and to think once again about what the Word of God has to say. In this particular year, just several weeks ago, the governor of the state of New York, Andrew Cuomo, signed a law legalizing a best, a, 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 as abortion now in the third trimester. So foreign is any sense of biblical truth or value to this man that he celebrated this by actually ordering that pink lights be shown on the World Trade Center to commemorate the bill that he had signed. Several weeks later, Virginia decided that it would try to follow suit. Um, perhaps you've read these stories in the news, but, but a, a member of the, the Virginia House of Delegates, Delegates, a woman by the name of Kathy Tran, also proposed a bill that would legalize abortion in the third trimester. Then the governor decided that he would step into it and endorsed this and made some comments of his own that stirred up a great furor with people because it wasn't difficult to really interpret those comments that uh, basically, he would be in favor of infanticide. I won't speak for him. I'm just saying the controversy. His name is Northam, and I'm sure you maybe have read those stories. How does all this tie in, and how do we find truth in the Bible that will allow us to address this within a biblical context? Many ways. As I've said to you for many years, every year at this time I've preached on this, and I've never run out of finding places in the Bible to preach on it. This year is no different, but the sermon that I'm going to bring to you this morning is entitled Innocent Blood. And you might have noticed that I called out that in the reading of verse number 16 of 2 Kings chapter 21 and also in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Kings chapter 24, innocent blood. There are two thoughts that we can take from the story of Manasseh. Two thoughts that we can take and then see how it was true then and then see how it relates to where we are in America today. I will tell you that these are sobering thoughts, but I will not leave you without some hope. I think you'll see that at the end of the message as we get to the second thought. But the first thought is judgment is coming. 
Now, I will tell you, I put it that way simply because that's a popular way we speak, but I will amend it from the very outset and tell you that I personally believe judgment is already here in the United States of America, but I can tell you the full force of God's judgment has not yet been visited on this land, and it will be as we look at this particular story. Who is Manasseh? Well, we can say a lot of things about Manasseh, but what's appropriate for the message this morning is to remind people that he has the distinction of being the most wicked king who ever ruled in the land of Judah. Now, someone might be thinking this morning, well, I thought that was Ahab. Well, no, because Ahab was a king in the north. So you remember that, and I'll just give you the, the remembrance of this, but I'll actually give you some numbers. If we work in round terms, we say that Solomon, who was David's son, reigned over the United Monarchy, the United Land of Israel, the United Kingdom, from 970 B.C. to 930. But you remember that when Solomon, in the latter years of his reign, got off into idolatry and different practices, and God visited judgment, and shortly after, when Rehoboam, his son, came to the throne, another individual whom God raised up as an instrument of his judgment, Jeroboam, came along, and the kingdom split. Uh, Judah in the south, Jerusalem, and uh, the tribe of Benjamin there and in the south with the southern kingdom, but the other ten tribes in the north uh, under Jeroboam. So when we talk about Ahab, it's absolutely true. You can look up the story in the Bible. It will tell you that there was no one like Ahab, but you have to understand this in the context of the northern kingdom. He, was, he excelled in being absolutely the most wicked monarch that the northern kingdom in Samaria ever had. But when you come to Judah, there is another man who holds that distinction, if you can call it that. It might be that we could very uh, accurately refer to him as the Ahab of the South. And it's interesting that the Bible would actually use that same way of describing him in some ways. Look at verse 3 in our chapter this morning, and you'll notice Ahab is brought up in connection with this man. For he, that is Manasseh, built up again the high places of Hezekiah, his which his, uh, his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab. Notice how he's likened to Ahab, because he really is basically the Ahab of the south. Over again, then in verse 13, you'll notice that Ahab is again mentioned. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, the line of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab. This is all very interesting, because that's an accurate uh, description of who this man was and the a good way for us to understand just how dastardly and how evil he was. It might be true to say he was worse in some ways because, unfortunately, he also has the distinction of being the longest reigning monarch in the kingdom of Judah, 55 years. So he had longer to perpetrate those things, even though at the end of his life we'll find out that there was some repentance and some attenuation of those things, but the crimes had been done. His sins, which are many, are cataloged for us in the first several verses, verses 1 through 5 in particular, but on down. We don't need to really spend time talking about a lot of these, but let's just take a quick scan. In verse number 2, it says he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen. So to depart from the worship of the true and living God and to reintroduce idolatry and the practices that God had originally displaced and ordered destroyed the Amorites and the others who dwelt in the land, to reintroduce that, to champion in that, to promote that in God's land is what the Bible is telling us here. 
Um, he built up again the high places to give more detail on this, which Hezekiah, his father, verse number three, had destroyed. Reared up altars for Baal. There you have the worship of Baal, as did Ahab. Verse number four, he built altars. Now, to make it even worse, bad enough, like Solomon, if you, you raised up these altars and paid um, acknowledgement to these false gods in the environs of Jerusalem, but to take and introduce it into the actual house of the Lord, to build altars to heathen gods in the courts of God's temple, and then on top of that to have an image of that grove that he erected and have that in the house of God was to just add coals to the fire and to increase the temperature of his misdeeds. You have this noted for us in verse number five. If you want to know what might have been the crowning or an example of the crowning sin that this man committed, you have that in verse number six. It says he made his son pass through the fire. It's difficult to understand precisely what's going on here, except that it involves something to do with heathen worship, and almost, well, the vast majority of Bible scholars and students are agreed that it involves child sacrifice. Um, if we read down further in the chapter, we find out that this was in recognition of the god Molech, who was the god of the Ammonites. And we can look in other places in the Bible. If we look at the parallel account in 2 Chronicles, I'm not asking you to turn to that at this point, but I'll simply tell you that this verse in Kings, verse 6, says he made his son. But if you look at the parallel account of this in 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 6, you'll find out it says his children. He made his children to pass through the fire. Can you imagine being so debauched, so depraved, so absolutely devoid of any scriptural guidance that you would sacrifice your own children? This is incredible, but it helps us understand what really are the depths of human depravity once they are unleashed upon us. The wonderful thing today to know is to understand that as much as we have to say to be accurate about Manasseh, he had the same heart we have. There's no telling what you and I would be capable of apart from the grace of God. I'm glad I'll never find that out. But I understand the wickedness of the human heart. And it's always good to understand when we have to point to these atrocities and these wickednesses to understand that God has saved us from that, but we're capable of that. We have the same fallen nature. This list that we've gone through is horrible, but as you have noticed, there is a crowning sin, this sin of human sacrifice, and the Bible describes it differently in verse 16. So look there, because this is what we're after today. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, beside his sin which he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Innocent blood. The Bible really doesn't tell us other than the reference to the human sacrifice, that is, the sacrifice of his children. Whether he extended that to other infants we're not given those details. That's quite possible that that's true. But there are also other ways to shed innocent blood. So the, the reference can be broader than just the specific application this morning, although we know the specific application applies to him because of the human sacrifice. Since we've taken the trouble to point out that he was the Ahab of the South, do you remember an occasion when Ahab was involved in the shedding of innocent blood? 
had nothing to do with child sacrifice that we're told. There had to do with a man by the name of Naboth. Do you remember who Naboth was? He had a vineyard. It was hard up against the vineyard of Ahab. Ahab wanted the vineyard. Now, if you've ever read that story before in the Bible, you find that Ahab went to him and told him he'd give him the worth of it in money. He wanted the vineyard. And Nahab turned him, uh, Naboth turned him down. Have you ever read that before and thought, well, he was just being hard-headed, you know? He, he could have cooperated and saved himself all this trouble. Not really, because as you read the story carefully, you find out it was part of his inheritance, and that inheritance was sacred, and it was in Scripture that that inheritance would be passed down. So he wasn't being cantankerous. He wasn't being a curmudgeon. He was just simply saying to Ahab, I can't do this. I can't violate my conscience. But Ahab didn't have much of a conscience. And so you remember that Ahab went home and pouted. And when Ahab went home and pouted, his wife, which probably outdid him in his wickedness, saw that he was upset. What are you upset for? Aren't you the king of Israel? Well, Naboth wouldn't let me have his vineyard. Well, I'll take care of that for you. And the next thing we know, with Ahab's tacit approval, uh, Jezebel has worked it out so that Naboth will be there. False witnesses will rise up against him, and he will be stoned. Beloved, that's innocent blood. There are many, many ways that this can be manifested, but we do know that the thing that we're talking about this morning of innocent blood is true insofar as Manasseh is concerned. Do you remember another story earlier, earlier in the Bible? In fact, it's the first murder in the Bible. Who was first murdered in the Bible? His name was Abel. God said to Cain, his blood crieth unto me from the ground. Innocent blood. His brother rose up against him because of the hatred and jealousy in his heart and slew him and shed his blood. Innocent blood. And Cain would bear the judgment of that. The Bible is pretty specific about this. When we get over to those verses that we read, in chapter 24, it calls this out again. So this is as if it were the crowning manifestation of his wickedness. When the Bible is telling us, after it gives us the story of his son Ammon and then his grandson Josiah, at the end of all of this, it tells us when this judgment finally came upon the land of Judah in the form of the Assyrians, surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight, for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did, and also, and so this is called out, for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, look at this last phrase, which the Lord would not pardon. That's scary. When you start talking about this in terms of the United States today, it, it, it just makes you feel like your heart's being ripped out. To see this land that we love, to see this land that heretofore had Christian values, was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, stray so far. To stray so far. I thought it was quite interesting just to demonstrate the, the convoluted, turned around values that we have. When this governor from Virginia first stirred up this big controversy with his comments about this law uh, with respect to third trimester abortion being passed in Virginia. Hasn't been passed yet, but he was giving it his support. 
Then it's discovered several days later that apparently a picture from years ago of him appeared in a yearbook. Are you familiar with this? Have you read this in the story? And he first admitted that he was one of the ones in the picture. Then he denied it, but he was supposedly the blackface. In other words, he was impersonating for the sake of the picture and what was going on at the party or whatever, darkened his skin so that he would appear to be a black person. Well, that's not very acceptable in today's society, but to have all of these people, including his fellow Democrats, rise up against him and demand, demand his resignation and say nothing about his support for third trimester abortion demonstrates to me that we don't know what end is up in the United States of America today. And this nation is headed for God's judgment. If you are thinking about unborn babies, they are perhaps the most innocent of any victim you can imagine. If you think about Nahab, Nahab's a grown man. He didn't have much way to defend himself against what happened, but a child in utero, a, children in the, a child in the womb has absolutely no way of protecting himself or herself. Absolutely, totally vulnerable. It would be difficult to understand a greater instance of innocent blood than that would be. They are completely defenseless. And also, as we think about America today and we think about judgment is coming, surely 60 million far outpaces anything that Manasseh ever did, even though he filled Jerusalem from one end to another, let alone these politicians in New York and in Virginia ratcheting up abortion to the third trimester. I can't even imagine that. I, I, I just can't even imagine that. I can't imagine when you look at sonograms and when you look at pictures and you have, uh, has been pointed out in people calling this out in the in the news. You have neonatologists and other doctors who devote their lives to saving uh, preemies, prematurely born children. Children who are born during that three, third trimester but are born prematurely. I've seen examples of this. You've seen examples of this. Children born at the 30th week, even earlier. And to realize that a, a human being comes out of that womb. You're talking about now just destroying that life. You're talking about hacking that child up. You're talking about taking that child's life. Surely, beloved, in Christian churches, our consciences need to be, again, tendered to that and to realize the horrible crime that's going on in this nation today and to realize the judgment that it is already visiting and will continue to visit upon our country. I told you, though, I would leave you with some hope, and so the second thought this morning is reprieve is possible. And I've chosen that word intentionally, reprieve, and I'll distinguish for that in a moment because you might be thinking to yourself, well, if the die is cast, if God tells us that he's in the case of Manasseh and his crime was less, that he filled Jerusalem from one end to another with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon, therefore his judgment was irrevocable. It was coming and there was no way really to turn it back at that particular point. And you may be asking, well, why is it even worth having the discussion this morning then? It is worth having the discussion because when you read about the story of Manasseh and see how it ends, you find out that reprieve, in other words, you can put it off, you can't necessarily change the fact that it's coming. Reprieve is possible. It was the Assyrians that God used 
eventually to get the attention of Manasseh. And we read about this in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 through 23, and on down through chapter 23 and verse 30. But God used those people. Let's just look at a couple of those verses. Um, this we need 2 Chronicles for, so if you don't mind, keep your fingers here and just go a little further, and we'll look at this parallel account so we can see this recorded. 2 Chronicles chapter 33 when you find that chapter, we're going to read several verses beginning at verse number 10. It says, And the Lord spake to Manasseh, 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10, And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Doesn't that sound up to date? Wherefore, verse 11, The Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him, and he was entreated, that is, God was entreated of him, and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. As I said Sunday night past, God can get your attention. And he certainly did in the life of Manasseh. Reading down a little bit further in this chapter, notice verse 18. 2 Chronicles 33, verse number 18. And it continues. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spake unto him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how... God was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespass and the high places wherein he the places wherein he built high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled behold they are written in the sayings of the seers reprieve not only did God hear the prayer when Manasseh finally was arrested by God and understood his crimes and understood his wrong. Not only did God allow himself to be entreated by the prayer of Manasseh, but Manasseh's son was a man by the name of Ammon, and he reigned only two years. Thank the Lord for that, because the Bible tells us he followed in the wake, the earlier wake, that is. Not the repentance, but the earlier sins of his father Manasseh. But... And this is quite interesting that I referred to a moment ago. If you're back in 2 Kings, turn to chapter 22, verse 1, which is actually the scripture I called out a moment ago. His grandson, this man Manasseh, his grandson was a man by the name of Josiah. Look at his story is introduced to us in verse number 1, and that is what runs from chapter 22, verse 1, down to chapter 23, verse 30. The Bible tells us that Joash was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 30 and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. If you haven't heard it summarized this way, could I present this to you this morning? When you look at the history of Judah, first of all, in contrast to the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom never had a king who was a revivalist. 
but the southern kingdom, Judah. Among all the kings who descended from David, Judah had three, three great kings of revival. They are, first of all and earliest, Jehoshaphat. Then you have Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, good, good King Hezekiah, as the Bible refers to him. Then you have this man by the name of Joash, Josiah. Sorry, how, how would you rank them? Well, it's kind of difficult to compare revivals maybe sometimes, but the Bible seems to give us some indication of this. And if we move down further uh, into the story, Let's look at this. Over in chapter 23, let's see the commentary that the Bible gives us once again on this Josiah and the revival that took place under him when it summarizes as follows. And like unto him, 2 Kings 23 verse 25, and like unto him, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses Neither was there any that arose like unto him. Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocation of Manasseh had provoked him with all. Reprieve is possible. Not pardon, but reprieve. An interesting distinction, is it not? all the provocations. God is capable of being provoked. Not many people talk about that too much today. We, we major, and there's good reason why we're glad to talk about this, God's long-suffering. But God's long-suffering has its limits. And there are certain things that provoke God, and this sin is certainly among them. I will share a personal belief. It's good for whatever you think it's good for. But personally, I think the die is cast in America today. I think God's judgment is coming on this land. I think God's judgment has already come. If you're talking about innocent blood, 60 million babies pales in comparison to anything that Manasseh did, and I don't think it's coming back. But that doesn't mean reprieve isn't possible. That's what gives us hope. What would you think about revival in America? What if God saw fit to intervene? He did here. Would you have ever thought that revival could have come towards the end of a reign that a man who was so dastardly, who was so wicked, who was so debauched that he was guilty of all these atrocities and yet God got his attention, heard his prayer of repentance, actually brought him back into the land, restored him to his throne, cut short, to only two years, the reign of his son, who was evil, and raised up his grandson at the age of eight, gave him a 31-year reign. And he was the greatest revivalist that the land of Judah ever knew. That's astonishing. If you told me that was going to happen in America today, I'd have to tell you, I, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I have to be like that guy in the Gospels that said, I believe, but I'm having trouble processing it. But here's an example of it in the Bible. I can't tell you I see some things out there that lead me to believe this is going to happen. In fact, I don't really see anything right now that leads me that this is going to believe it's going to happen. But there is hope. It's happened before. 
Do you think for a mom moment about what that would mean? Now, maybe you're here today and you're older and you say, I've lived out my life. Well, I'll tell you what it means because many people here today have children and grandchildren. I'm not worried so much about me, although I do understand that there will come a time, as Jesus prophesied, when he that killeth you think he doeth God's service. That's John 16, too. You can go read it. But I'm not so much worried for me. This Tuesday, I'll turn 65, so I don't know how many years I have left, but I'm not sure that's happening in my, that's happening in my lifetime, although it's possible. But my oldest son is 30. I have two grandchildren there, three and one. We're talking about their lifetimes. Would I be interested in a reprieve? I sure would. I'd be interested for their sakes. I'd be interested for the sakes of your children and grandchildren. I'd be interested for the sake of the gospel because there are souls to be saved. There's the work of the kingdom to be done. There are people to be reached. There are people who still haven't heard. And regardless of how bankrupt morally America has become today, it still is sending forth missionaries and supplying the wherewithal and finances for missionaries around the world. I'd take a reprieve for that reason. Furthermore, it would seem that in much of the world today, the only semblance of sanity, even though we're losing it here, is, seems to be found here. There's still some semblance of sanity. When you look at Europe, is further along than what America is. On down this road towards departing from biblical values. And of course, when you look at other places where a different religion, particularly Islam, prevails. It's very dark, absolutely dark in those places. So personally, for what it's worth, and I, I tell you it's my personal opinion, I think the die is cast. I don't think it's coming back, but I do believe reprieve is possible. I'm not under the illusion that President Trump is a Sunday school attender. I don't know the status of his heart. You don't either. But I do believe that he's closer aligned with biblical values than most anything the other party that's taking a hard left turn as fast as it can has to offer. He called out this Governor Northam of New York for what he had said about abortion. And I thank God for that. Somebody's still willing to stand up. Somebody's still willing to take a stand. Things went downhill very, very quickly after Josiah. If you want to really know just how determined God was after the wickedness and the sins of Manasseh to bring judgment upon Judah, even though he cut short the life of this Ammon and his reign to two years, allowed Josiah to come to the throne at a very young age and to have 31 years, yet even in his case, God cut that short. 39 is young, right? If, if you just take those numbers and use them, that's young. That's really young. <laughs> That's young. But, and it doesn't make much sense until you evaluate it in this context. Here you have, if you know the story, here you have Pharaoh Necho. In other words, the Pharaoh in Egypt. He's concerned about the rise of the Assyrians. You know, we had a good lesson in the Sunday school class this morning about Bible geography. It's very important. So you have... Egypt down here, then you have the Holy Land coming up like this, and then you go over into Mesopotamia like this, 
and Palestine, God has positioned Palestine in such a way that it's right between the two. Anybody going back and forth goes through there. You don't go across the desert, especially not in Bible days. You might fly over it now. But you don't go across the desert. You go through the land of Palestine. Well, why did God put his word and his people and his values and his truth right in the middle? So people would hear. He made them a kingdom of priests. They didn't always live up to that. But he put them there for that particular reason. So here's Pharaoh Necho. He's coming up. He's concerned about the rise of the Assyrians, which are becoming fast becoming the, the, the Russia, the China of the day, the superpower. He's worried about that. He wants to go through the land of Palestine, Palestine to face these people in battle before they can get close to him. Josiah stands in his way. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just grant him safe passage? Why wouldn't he say, Lord bless you, go deal with those folks, they need it. But somehow he was determined, we're not given all of the details of this, somehow he was determined, he went out and tried to stop Pharaoh Necho, he was killed. So at whatever age, 39 or so, his, his own reign, even though he was the greatest revivalist that Judah ever had, was cut short. And immediately, things went downhill so fast that in a matter of years, God's judgment was coming. I'd still take the reprieve, wouldn't you? I'd still be awfully glad for the reprieve. What can we do? Maybe you're asking that question. I don't have all the answers to that. I do think we can pray. I don't think we have to stop there, but I think we can pray. How might you pray? Well, I'll tell you how I pray, and if you think there's any merit to it, you can pray this way too. I'm not telling you what to pray. But first of all, it wouldn't hurt us to pray that God will help us to be the salt and light that we need to pray and that revival might come to our land. God can do that, right? We have to believe that. That's hope that we have that God may not yet be done with what he wants to do with the United States and through the United States. I think there's some other ways to pray. While I am concerned, so please just don't misunderstand me, while I am concerned that we should first and foremost pray for people like Andrew Cuomo in New York and Kathy Tran in the Virginia House of Delegates and the Governor Northam, when it becomes obvious that they have set their hands to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. I have no problem that if to pray to God that if they are not willing to repent and respond, because there will be an outcry against this, that if they are not willing to respond to this and their values are simply political, only what gets them ahead politically, doesn't matter how many innocent lives you tromp on to do that, I have no problem praying for God's judgment on them. There is a place for imprecation, right? The imprecatory prayers of the Old Testament may not be the first prayers of a Christian, but they are in the Bible for a reason. How might you pray? Well, I don't know. You figure out how you want to pray, but I'm just telling you this. Already, this Northam, I would say that he got a tiger by the tail. He didn't get it how he thought. He got a pretty much, none of his own party were really concerned, as I said earlier, that he had anything to say about third trimester abortion. They were very concerned that he had something to say or a picture of him with a black face. People all the way from A to Z, it seems, were calling for his resignation. He's got a tiger by the tail. 
Do you think that happened by chance? Do you think it happened by chance that right in the whole context of what he had said about third trimester abortion and his support for that law, that God unleashed something on him publicly that may well yet bring him down? Who knows? Talk about the hypocrites that they are. You've got the lieutenant governor that also called, took him to task for it, and then now they've got him. Couldn't happen to a nicer bunch. <laughs> Sorry for the editorial. <laughs> Things went downhill quickly, but we can pray. We can take a stand. We can let our legislators know exactly how we feel about this. We do not have a friendly administration in Harrisburg. Don't take for granted that Tom Wolf wouldn't try and jump on the same bandwagon if he thought there was political capital. Someone told my wife at work recently, and I think this, I don't know how this person got this, this person to me, I can't know how you can say it any better than this. This person, the discussion was going on about marijuana being legalized, and this person said the only reason it isn't legal in Pennsylvania yet is because he hasn't figured out how to tax it. In other words, moral values don't really enter in. Political values and political capital enter in. Don't kid yourself that we have a friendly administration in Harrisburg. We do not. So we do need to let our legislators know how we feel about this. We do need to be certain that anything he might attempt in this area would be met with a, a tremendous response from the people of God. I'm not advocating that you spend all your time with politics. There are people who do that. We do have to be involved, but not to the exclusion of gospel work. And there are some people who get that all turned on its head and get so involved in politics that, but I think God does need people in that arena, don't you? We can speak out. We can let our legislators know how we feel. There are plenty of good pro-life groups that you could make a contribution to. They need help. They need resources. I will close with this particular illustration in the end, but just be aware that should you choose to speak up and speak out, I'm not advocating doing it in a cantankerous way or an abrasive way. But you know what, folks? You have to sometimes say what the truth is. And a lot of people don't like the truth and don't want to hear the truth. Should you decide to speak up, whether at your workplace, your school, or wherever it is that you are, just be prepared. A 16-year-old boy was among other students from Covington Catholic in Kentucky. His name was Nick Sandman. You know the story. It's been all over the news. They were there, just so you don't lose the facts of the situation and everything that went on. They were there as part of the March for Life rally. That's why they were there. It was the Roe versus Wade deal. It was the March for Life. That's why they were there. The news media tried to spin it that he was there and it was part of a, uh, the problem was it was an indigenous people's march because of the confrontation, supposed confrontation with the Native American. An indigenous people's march. They didn't mention that he was there for part of the March for Life, the pro-life rally. Over the weekend, a brief video clip 
of what was portrayed in the media of a 16-year-old teenager supposedly mocking this Native American was jumped on by people all over the United States, news anchors, editorialists, late night people on the news. Even his own high school, in a rush to judgment, condemned the students. Let me give you a sampling. Howard Dean, who is the former leader of the Democratic Party, called Covington Catholic a hate factory and said, shut it down. Another television uh, author and television host, Reza Aslan, tweeted that the smiling young man in the MAGA hat had a quote-unquote punchable face. Can you imagine what they would do with that if President Trump said that? He might, but can you imagine what they would do with it? Another journalist by the name of Nathaniel Friedman was one who tweeted something like this. This was what he tweeted, dox them all. Do you know what that is? That's where they basically find out all your personal information, where you live, what your name is, what your age is, where you go to school and everything else, and put it on the internet so people can show up to harass you or do something worse. Dox them all, he says. Late night star, excuse me, that's the word that people would use, for HBO's show, Bill Mayer. Made me sick. I looked at that clip. I can't even tell you the words he used. They're too vulgar. What he called this young man, there's two words that couldn't even be repeated in this pulpit. And repeatedly went on in his comedy routine that had everybody laughing, referring to this young man, 16 years old, as having a quote-unquote smirk face. Come on, the kid's 16 years old. What do you expect him to do with some guy jumps in his face and starts beating a drum? To me, it's amazing he held his calm the way he did. I'll tell you what his four crimes were, and they weren't the ones that the media called attention to. Number one, he was male. Number two, he was white. Number three, he had an MAGA hat. And number four, he was at a pro-life rally. Those were his four crimes. Just be aware that should you take your stand, it may not result in this type of thing, but did you really think that that young man when he went to Washington to be a part of that rally ever thought that something like that could happen? So I can't say. I can only say this, and I have to close here, we cannot be indifferent. We cannot be like Jonah. We cannot put our heads in the sand and just excuse what's going on and say, well, what can I do? You and I might not be the president, we might not be a senator, we might not be a congressman, but we are Americans. And we do have the two things that Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount that are required of any citizen of the kingdom. Ye are the light of the world. Ye are the salt of the earth. And the salt that has lost its savor is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of man. May you and I 
not be salt which has lost its savor. O God in heaven, please help us today with those things that we have heard, to take them and give them prayerful consideration, to understand and know how as individual Christians we can be a part of American society